The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, editor of Reuters Breaking Views in New York. This week, we took the show on the road. We went to Bogota, Colombia, and we spoke with Mauricio Cardenas. He's the country's minister of finance. The minister hosted the exchange in his office overlooking the presidential palace and the Church of St. Augustine, whose bells you'll actually hear chiming through the middle of our conversation. We discussed the prospects for the Colombian economy in light of the end of a 50-year internal war with the leftist FARC guerrillas. After reaching a peace treaty, which is still pretty controversial in Colombia, the FARC are now laying down their weapons and integrating slowly into the political and economic structure of the nation. According to Cardenas, the end of hostilities opens up lots of economic opportunities for Colombia. It allows the government to attract foreign investment to build things like tollways and other infrastructure that really couldn't get built when there was any chance that terrorists would just blow them up. The opening of more arable land will be another big focus for investment. There'll be sizable costs associated with keeping the peace, of course. But Cardenas defies arguments from some, including a Colombian think tank called AMIF, uh, that the country will not quickly extract dividends from winding down the military and law enforcement. The economic benefits of peace will offset the costs and growth will lift all boats, he says. Oh, he also explains why he decided not to run for the Colombian presidency early next year when they have elections. Anyway, check it out. With the peace deal with the FARC pretty much done, um, and possibly one with the ELN on the way, what comes next for the Colombian economy? I've always said that the peace agreement, it's not something that will generate the benefits overnight. It's going to be a process, some sectors, some regions of Colombia responding faster than others. Uh, for example, the first sector I'd like to mention as kind of like the low-hanging fruit mm. in terms of the peace dividend has been tourism. Yeah. And that has been fast. I mean, you talk to people in the hotel business, they talk about really like 10 percentage point increase in occupancy rates. That sector, you can say, the peace dividend is quite evident. Right. That was the sort of first manifestation of it. Exactly. People feeling that there's safety and stability, they can come in. Next in line, I would say, is agriculture. Because the conflict was mostly rural. In the last stages of the conflict, it did not really affect life in the cities. But, of course, it it affected rural development, investment in the more remote areas of Colombia in agriculture. And, and that is the next step. I mean, we're going to start seeing more and more firms coming to Colombia to invest in the rural sector. Colombia has almost half of its territory that still needs to be developed in terms of infrastructure, and it, it needs to be utilized for food production. I read recently some commentary about the demand for food that will come from China. When the Chinese start eating the same amount of calories and the same amount of protein than an average American, they'll need about an acre per habitant. And China can only offer 0.2 acres. 
So they need to get the rest. They also need kidney dialysis, of course. Yeah. <laughs> they need the rest from somewhere else. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and Colombia has basically the areas that can be used for, for agricultural production to, to feed them. So that's next. And that, of course, required peace because those areas were affected by the conflict. So this is going to be a process. How much is this going to represent yeah, at the end of the day? I say in five or seven years. I think peace will add to our GDP about 1% per, per year. That, mm -hmm. that means if Colombia grows 4% per year on average, it will basically be able to grow at least 5%. Right. I mean, I was looking at this, uh, the working paper that the Anif people that did, the, uh, the, the white paper, and they've... they've they're, they're, they're skeptics. Yes, yeah, they are, but they, they, well, some of what they say is, of course, consistent with what you just said about a one percentage point increase in GDP. Yeah. I guess the issue from, from their perspective, and I, I'd love to get your perspective on this, is that that will be true after sort of paying for the piece, and, and, and they, they suggest there are a number of hits the GDP will take or the economy will take and the government finances will have to, to bear as we get to that. And, and they, they talk about you know, the cost of keeping the peace, and then as you don't immediately get to draw down the military, the of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. They talk about land restitution, reparations for people who have been displaced over the years by the conflict, um, sort of demobilizing the, the FARC, the guerrillas, giving them money. I know this has been quite controversial, of course, and was one of the reasons we had difficulty with the referendum. Um, and then things like crop substitution, and then sustainability investments. So I guess critics of the peace yeah. agreement overstate the costs and understate the benefits. In terms of the costs, the first thing that needs to be said is that it is always going That's to be That's the cathedral, true. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah, we're in downtown part of Bogotá. They're full of churches around us. <laughs> so they this ministry, yeah. This ministry has been very active in the budgeting of the peace agreement it means the costs of the peace agreement and we have been very strict in terms of what to include in this budget and the final figure uh, which is a figure for 15 years we're talking 15 years mm -hmm. it's about 35 billion dollars over 15 years so that means you know, less than $3 billion a year. Less than $3 billion a year. The, the cost of The cost the, yeah, of this. If you amortize which, it. Which, by the way, it's mostly about investment. It's mostly about bringing roads, water, sanitation, electricity, education to those remote areas of the country that have been mostly affected by the conflict. So it's about an investment that will help the country grow faster and help the country close the gaps that exist between the living standards here in Bogotá and the living standards in areas like the Meta or Bichal. Uh, so it's necessary. And it's not an overwhelming amount of money. It is something that is manageable within our budget. And the most important thing, it's an investment that will yield a positive return, to put it on economic terms, because it's not only the ability to develop those areas of Colombia, but it's also the benefit that comes with peace. I mean, with peace, we're going to save in many, many fronts. In health, we're going to save money. In the military, we're going to save money. In uh, the costs associated with the losses mm -hmm. uh, in human lives, in productivity. So I have no doubt 
that with these figures in terms of the cost are moderate, the benefits of the peace agreement are going to outweigh by a large margin the cost associated with it. Well, let's talk about infrastructure, which I, you know, I experienced this over the weekend when I was driving around a sort of remote part of Boyacan, Santander. The roads are, you know, to, to, to say the least, they are in need of improvement. Right. I mean, you can see, area, and that wasn't necessarily an area that was directly affected by FARC uh, activity. But certainly, and when I talk to investors in the United States, for instance, who are looking at Colombia, they say there was a lot of infrastructure that couldn't be done because, you know, you're worried about someone blowing it up or whatever it might be. How do, how, do you, how do you see it panning out? What kind of infrastructure are we looking oh, look, at? The, and how, how important will the foreign or private investment be? Absolutely. Them? Well, the, this government has made progress in many, many areas in Colombia's uh, economic development. I would say in almost every single area. I mean, you go from education to technology, health, uh, sanitation, water, etc. But the government of President Santos will be remembered by two major initiatives. Number one piece, and number two, very ambitious investment in infrastructure, which is at this point essentially a program about building the highways. Not the rural roads, not the secondary or tertiary roads, mostly the highways. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing this with uh, public-private partnerships. The world is looking at our model as an example. We're at this point in time, working on about 32 different highways. It's about $15 billion in investment. So it is very important. But you're right in saying that the deeper parts of Colombia still have very, very poor roads. And they, they need improvement, as you said. Now we're promoting a reform to our royalties so that we can allocate more resources to build these rural roads, the tertiary roads, the, you know, the The, the roads that go directly to the small municipalities or small areas of uh, where uh, agriculture and, and uh, producers live. Um, and that's, that's the work in which we're now. So we, you're absolutely right. We need to invest in roads, which is the necessary complement of peace. And how do you bring for, foreign investment into that? What's the, the foreign investment will come not to these small roads. These small roads are not profitable in the It's sense that you can collect good, tolls you know. or anything like that. But foreign investment is already coming to the highways project, which we call the 4G program because right. it's the fourth generation of road concessions. So they are coming. They are, we have uh, investors uh, from um, Spain. We have investors from France. We have people from Costa Rica, Mexico. Uh, are you satisfied with the pace of foreign investment? Or yeah, do, yeah. Like well, not more? enough investment from the U.S., if I, if I point to yeah. one sector in which we haven't seen special interest on the part of investors. Mm -hmm. The financing, yes. I mean, a lot of these projects are being funded through bond issues or direct loans from U.S. banks, uh, which is positive, and I, I don't want to underestimate that, but we don't see the investors bringing their capital, their, putting that? the equity in the projects. I don't know if there is not enough interest. I mean, there's not too much experience in the U.S. with public-private partnerships no. on the first... On the, on, on, We're struggling on the to figure it out in the United States right. under the Trump regime. So we, and, I, and we've been talking about this with the Trump administration. How can we help? Because the model that we designed is working well. You know, it's, it's, this is not an easy thing. This is very complex, the allocation of risks. What risks 
are borne by the public sector? Which ones by the private sector? What is the adequate structure in terms of the capital and the debt? Uh, how to contribute from the government side? I mean, you have to put money from the budget to supplement the investment from the private sector. All these things we have worked a lot since this administration began, and I think we have a very good model. It's working well. So G20, the G20 countries recently praised our, our model as I think is, is, this is the leading case in the emerging world. Now. So can you, can you export it to the United States? I'll be happy to. <laughs> uh, I'll be happy to. I'm going to see Secretary Mnuchin in a couple of weeks and we'll talk about this. Oh, really? So, yeah, because they, they, they have very big plans. It's a little different, of course, a toll road where there hasn't been a road is, an, I think, an easier concept for, from an investment perspective. You know, you have a certain amount of years, a certain amount of, of income from it. I mean, the U.S. is a little bit more, it's about redeveloping in some cases. Right, right. But you, and you, got, you, you have to get people used to paying tolls. That's the first thing. I mean, it's, it's a non-starter. Right. Speaking of the U.S., I'm just curious how you feel about the, the pesos you know, level right now at about 3,000 to the dollar. How does the currency flow into your view about GDP growth and investment here over the next you know, couple of years? Well, we have a flexible exchange rate system, so we don't have a target. We don't set a number that we think is the goal. But, of course, there's, there's always a projection, a point of reference. And for me, personally, is 3,000 pesos per dollar, which has been very close to the average this year and last year. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's below, sometimes it's above. But certainly that's the level that I consider the equilibrium exchange rate. Uh, of course, it changes, and it does change a lot in relation to or in response to better uh, changes in oil prices. Oil prices yeah, do sure. have a, a significant effect on our exchange rate. But 3,000 pesos per dollar makes this country very competitive for tourism, for industry, for agriculture. The economy has already absorbed that exchange rate. We used to have, in the first months and years after the depreciation, we had high inflation. Now inflation is back to the target of the central bank. It's normal again. This is news from yesterday. The inflation rate in June, the 12-month inflation was 3.99. Mm -hmm. Our target goes between 2 and 4%. We're comfortable with that. So I, I'm happy with an exchange rate around 3,000 pesos per dollar. I think it, it's going to help develop our exports. Yeah. I mean, one of the, 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 the tricks you have to, to pull off here as, the, as running the, the economy and the finances of the government is you've got to maintain a certain amount of fiscal discipline at a moment when, um, you know, there are, there are demands for more infrastructure investment and things like that. There's, of course, the peace dividend and the, peace, the cost of peace. How do you see your role in trying to maintain that, that discipline? Well, unfortunately, but I think this goes without saying, and it's part of the responsibility of being Ministry of Minister of Finance is you have to say no to more things, more initiatives, more proposals than those that you say yes. Mm -hmm. um, and not because the ones that you say no are not important or you don't think that they are strategic or you don't think that they are necessary, but it's just that you have to keep the public finances in good shape. And in this country, this is very important. It's been a long tradition, keeping a low fiscal deficit, keeping a low public debt, Investment grade rating. Investment grade rating. We have a triple B rating. It's the highest in our history. It is very important. So uh, we have to give priority to that. Now, saying no now I think is harder than saying no five or ten years ago. The reason is 
that we are coming out of a 10-year boom in oil prices. There was more availability of funding, there were more resources, there were more revenues to the government, more aspirations were resolved, mm -hmm. people were able to you know, improve their living standards. Uh, and now we don't have those resources. Colombia lost, just to give you some perspective, in terms of revenues, the national government of Colombia lost about 3% of GDP in revenues. Just because of the oil price Just decline. because of the oil price decline. Uh, we had to compensate for some of that by introducing very difficult measures. Well, you had a retail sales tax. Exactly. We rose the VAT from 16 to 19%. Um, and, uh, you know, difficult and tough decisions, but necessary to keep our public finances in order. But there are many pressures. Some of them also coming, for example, from the peace process. I mean, yeah. you would like to see a faster implementation of the peace agreement, but you have to implement the peace agreement in a way that is consistent and coherent with our fiscal sustainability. Or right now, for example, we will have to return to Congress some bills that have good intentions but are very costly in terms of pensions, in terms of benefits, health benefits, things of that sort, but we'll have to send them back to Congress. You but, said, you've mentioned that, in, I've seen in interviews in the past where you said it's, being finance minister often means being unpopular. Um, yeah. So it's the raising of VAT, for instance, like that. But I've also seen speculation that you would be interested, or you thought about looking at the presidency after um, uh, well, but, Santos is. But certainly this is not going to happen next year because the ministers that were interested in aspiring to the presidency next year had to resign in late May. I obviously did not, did not resign. And the reason I did not resign is that I think that the economy needs my full concentration because we're just coming out of a very difficult transition as a result of the shock in oil prices. Um, I want to complete my job. I want to make sure that the economy is fully back on track, that the economy is growing again. We were moving forward with these tailwinds of high oil prices. Now we have to put in motion our own engines, the engines of agriculture, manufacturing, and that needs, um, needs work, and I'm here to finish that work. Okay, but it doesn't mean sometime down the road you wouldn't think well, who about knows? it. Who knows, who right. knows. Right, and you, you spent quite a bit of time in, in Washington, right? I, yeah, well, I studied in California. And, I spent four years in California back when I was in grad school, and more recently I spent three years at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Right, and ha have you enjoyed move, moving back and becoming a, yeah, a, contributing course, to the government? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, is Columbia a better place to live than it was as, before? As I, as I told one of my daughters when we were coming back, because they were very happy and they were quite well installed in their schools in Washington, I said, look, now I, I won't have to read the news about what's going on in the government in, in the newspapers. Now I'll be part of those news, and I think that's very exciting. Yeah. One other question about sort of bringing investment to, to Columbia. With the peace now kind of baked in as, as part of expectations here for the economy, what role will the stock market play in trying to bring investment to the country or to, to I don't know, to inculcate uh, entrepreneurship in the country? Well, this brings me to the issue of the Pacific Alliance, because to be fully honest, I don't think the Colombian economy alone will be able to support a large capital market with, of interest to major investment flows, uh, global investment flows. Mm -hmm. We have to develop a regional market. 
which is the market of the four countries of the Pacific Alliance. Integrate our, our stock markets, integrate our pension fund industry, integrate a number of activities that really form the basis of the capital markets. Um, and this is something which we're working very consistently within the group of finance ministers of Mexico, Peru, Chile, and us. We've done uh, a number of things. Uh, our stock markets are integrated now. If you list a company in Mexico, you can immediately trade that stock in the other countries. If you issue a bond, the same happens. An IPO, the same thing. Derivatives. Now we're moving to the mutual fund industry. So if you list a mutual fund here in Colombia, you go and look for investors without any additional requirement in the other four countries or the other three countries of the Pacific Alliance. If a, if a pension fund from Mexico wants to come and invest in Colombia, there's no taxes. Things of that sort. When I saw you in Medellin, I, I asked you a question about the Sindicato Antioqueño, but you had mentioned that they, um, that you bought, when you were a kid, you would get the stock. Was it you told me yet? Maybe yes, and yeah. it's true. I'm yeah. from Medellin. So okay. my grandmother, as many other grandmothers, this is not unique to her, used to give us for birthdays or whatever as present stock. Stock in one of these? In one of these companies. I mean, a few stocks here, a few stocks there. Yeah. yeah. So, there's a, so there is a capital markets mentality to the... There is, especially in Medellin. Hope those church bells didn't hurt your ears too much. Inside of Mauricio's office, they were super loud. Anyway, that's it for now. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Exchange Podcast. I'd like to thank our producers, Bethel Hobte, Kate Duguid, and Andrew D'Antonio, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. Thanks for tuning in and adios. Adios.